So the um, challenge that we have is bringing the practice into our world. Yes. And it's inevitable when we're doing anything where there's a little bit more concentration, there's going to be a discord of, well, how do you do this in the real world? Because the conditions that are needed for concentration are notoriously absent in the normal kind of mm, experience of day-to-day. So we don't try and superimpose special conditions onto situations that is, don't have special conditions. But what we're looking at is, is that when we have a little bit more understanding how these things are working in ourselves, then there's a way in which the insight that comes from that then can extend into circumstances when the co- concentration is not so refined and the conditions are not so ideally set up. So here we are in a little desert and, you know, we're sitting quietly in a room except for when we're doing inside dialogue. You know, we're walking quietly outside. There's very little stimulus. There's very little impact, input, you know, aside from the immediacy of what's happening in the present moment. And having spent the morning with body awareness and relaxation, there's a possibility that attention can settle and the mind can become calm in a way that often it doesn't experience that when you're multitasking and doing a whole variety of things. So the calm then gives rise to the possibility of being able to see the emergence of this and how it starts to relate to each other. So our body has sensitivity, our eyes see, our ears hear, our nose smells, our mouth both tastes and swallows. Yeah, And our mind, which I left out of the picture for most of the day, thinks and perceives and cognizes and recognizes. Okay. In addition to these six kinds of things, there's the consciousness that arises dependent on contact. Right? You don't see consciousness. It's not something that you can see. But in order to know something, to see the, to hear the bell, or to to see a sight, there's this, there's the object, the eye, and then the consciousness that all comes together. So these are the three things that come together with every contact, which is just. And so part of that is is that when one begins to get a feeling for this, then it starts breaking up the picture, I am or I see, okay? I feel, I think, I know. There's just knowing, there's feeling, there's seeing, there's tasting, okay? Because it is arising dependent on these conditions. And when the conditions are no longer present, it's no longer there. So the I-ness, the minus, the making of I is what we do with the arising of contact and the object and consciousness. But the I is not inherent in the equation. It's added on to afterwards. And it's not necessary. It's not essential. In fact, it isn't actually... It, it, it has no real relevance other than the fact that that's the thing that makes us miserable. <laughs> but don't you feel vulnerable? Because what you're talking about, I think, is the extinguishing of self, which I know... We should all put that out because when you talk about this contact, you said it's not the eye, it's seeing, hearing. But then uh, it goes back to the self. Okay, there's two selves. There's the Buddhist sense of self, which is the eye making that owns contact. And then there's a the psychological self, which is the developmental self that is required to have some sense of healthy relationship of who you are in relationship to the world. And because we're not that sophisticated, we think self means self, and self does not mean self. 
The psychological sense of self is absolutely essential for normal functioning. And anybody who's had any contact with somebody who doesn't have a healthy psychological self knows that that is the most extreme forms of suffering that you could come in contact with in this world. Okay? So that self you absolutely don't want to extinguish. In fact, you want to do everything you can to make it strong and solid and beef out its boundaries so that it knows where it is in relationship to other. Okay? The psychological self is essential. The Buddhist sense of self is the source of suffering. The same word means different things. We need to be very careful in discerning what we're talking about when we're talking about extinguishing the self. Okay? Now, for many of us, what happens is, is that we come to meditation practice and there's fissures or fractures in our psychological self. There's wounds or trauma or stuff that happened at different developmental stages. And so when we start practicing insight, it reveals those cracks. And rather than the insight necessarily healing them, it can actually open them up further. Okay? So what we need to do is we need to be able to discern what's needed at any particular time. When is the insight needed? And when is the kind of stuff that's needed in order to close those fissures rather than open them up? So that the sense of self in the psychological sense can become healthy. When the psychological sense is healthy, then that is giving us a foundation to be able to see the insight into non-self. Now, these two things are not sequential, they're simultaneous. The more insight there is, the more that supports the psychological development. The more psychological health there is, the more capacity there is for the insight to go deep. And I have found it tremendously humbling after years of meditation to realize I've got fundamental foundational work that I need to attend to. It's like, you don't think you're supposed to have to do that. But, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, teacher, uh, what you're saying again, cognitively, I understand. It's, it's the first time I ever heard that about the psychological meaning of self. But I think it would take me years of meditation practice to distinguish the two in me. I don't, I, I mean, just as you were talking, I tried to envision these two different selves and I can't. It's taken me decades. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> decades. I mean, I didn't have the slightest clue until after 20 years of meditation. And it's taken 25, 30 years now to be able to understand when I need to do one and when I need to attend to the other with some sense of fluidity. But just because it's taken me ages doesn't mean that it's not something that's worthwhile to know about and worthwhile to have as part of one's framework. That this is stuff that's part of the package that needs attending to. Yeah. So the Buddha had a psychological self to his last breath. That's right. And you see, one of the things that I think my sense is, is is that the psychological developmental stage of the people in Asia was much more intact than what we're dealing with in the Western context. So the assumption that they were making with meditation was an intact sense of self. I have not once met anyone (laughs) coming into a monastery who can say or who has an intact sense of self. Not once, you know? 
20 years of living in a monastery, not once. That goes for the monks and the nuns and the lay people visiting. <laughs> okay? So we're dealing with something that's a little bit different than what I think the Buddha was dealing with in terms of the kind of basic fabric of where people were at. All right? But back to your first question, which had to do with, all right, if I'm walking through on the forest or in the desert, you know, and I'm... It's not a conceptual thing of trying to think it through. It's a question of allowing the concentration to be able to see the difference, okay? So when the concentration is able to see the arising of these things, you're not stumbling, you know, because you're not tripping over your stuff. You're not thinking about it. It's just clear. There's movement that's pleasant, there's movement, it's unpleasant. There's movement, it's pleasant. There's movement, it's unpleasant. Pleasant and unpleasant. It arises, it's dependent on contact, and then it releases. But the reason why it can be helpful, or the reason why I found it so... Because, you know, I saw aggregates, smaggregates. It's like, you know, who cares, all right? Well, you know you got a body, you're feeling form. It's like, what's the deal? But in the retreat I was on, it was like, this is central. If we have some sense of a fundamental relationship with aggregates, if we have some sense of what's actually happening in our relationship with feeling, that is the key to the whole cycle of suffering. That's absolutely central. Aggregates is the relationship with body, feeling, perceptions, formations, and consciousness. That's the package, all right? So in a Buddhist sense of self, the self falls apart, and there's just the aggregates. Okay? There's the form, our body, our posture, the feelings that we have in it. There's the feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. There's the labeling of it, or the naming of it. And then there's the emotions, or memories, or... uh, associations that come with perception and then there's the consciousness that arises in each moment with each of these specific things there's no buddy to whom this is all happening it's just happening it's just happening it's just happening but we get lost in the happening own the happening and then make a problem out of it because what's happening is not what we think should be happening according to our identity of what we've taken ourselves to be. So that is a super imposition on top of what's happening. And we don't see it. That just seems normal. So the ownership and then the battling is where the stress comes from. So when we can see the whole thing arising is just then there's less suffering. When there isn't identification or ownership, there's no suffering. So it can be unpleasant. It can be extremely unpleasant. But there's no identification with it. There's no resistance to it. There is no suffering, even if it's extremely unpleasant. So the cycle of suffering can end even if what we're dealing with is extremely unpleasant. Well, that's good news. (laughs) Because I don't know about you, but I don't have a magic wand to make it the extremely unpleasant, pleasant, or neutral. I don't have it. But what I can do is I can watch the resistance that I have to it, and I can watch the way that I try and battle with it and change it and manipulate it, 
or the kinds of things that I do around myself, around it, who I am in relationship to it, and that's where I have some choice, and that's where I have an influence. And that's where my peace and freedom comes from. So this kind of focus on aggregates and feeling and contact, you know, it's a very, it's kind of narrow, but it's right, right, right to the, to the core of where the problem is. So, okay, so let's say we're driving down the street. I don't know, are you into cars? Do you like cars? No, I use them. You lose them. <laughs> Something that grabs your attention, what would that be? Uh, it, it would be a Okay, so you've got a particular truck that would really grab your attention, yeah? So you see a big four-wheel drive pickup truck that's just beautiful. And you think, oh, that's just beautiful, right? So then you think, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to have one of those? Yeah, and then what it would take to have one of those and all the things that you could do with one of those, the things that you could haul, the places you could go, yeah? So the mind is going off into all of that. What's needed is to recognize pleasant feeling. The side of the pickup truck is a pleasant feeling. And the whole papancha, the whole proliferation, is all related to the fact that there's a pleasant feeling. There's contact. It's pleasant. And everything that follows is based on the fact that it's pleasant. When you can see that, it brings more space to, wouldn't it be wonderful and all the things that I can do and what would it be great and I can go here and do that and I can haul this and I can haul that and I would feel great. It's right fitting my image of who I think I am. Yeah? So when you see that all of that is just related to pleasant feeling, it's like putting a crowbar in. It separates the space. You know, what was apparently sealed has now got some space. Or you go to work and the boss dumps on you. So, you know, you've done everything you can to do what you need to do in order to have something on time and the bus comes over and just, just dumps, right? You know, normally it's extremely activating. You know, I can't stand this anymore. I can't do this anymore. I'm going to leave. I need to have it out with him. I need a confrontation. We've got to sort this out. This is really a big problem. This is unpleasant feeling. You heard something. It's unpleasant. It's an unpleasant feeling. So where it is challenging is is that when we work with the Buddhist concept of letting go, it doesn't mean that we negate our social responsibilities. It doesn't mean we let people walk over us. It doesn't people we have any uh, ability to um, communicate in ways which allows more health and well-being in our family and our relationships. But what it does mean is, is that when we can do our bit, which is to release the heat of it, then when we come back to the conversation, it's not coming from the urgency of not having released the heat, the anger, the frustration, the pain, the vulnerability. Could you repeat that again? <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm really resonating with it. So I just like to echo through me. Which bit? Which bit? The last part. Which part? Which bit? That you come to the situation without the angst. Okay, so from the Buddhist perspective, our work is to do what is our is to attend to our own reactivity. So if we're desiring something or we are aversive to something, that's a reactivity. 
So, you know, if there's something beautiful you really love, you want it, that's a reactivity. If there's something really nasty and you don't want it, that's a reactivity. So a relationship is is, is where you're trying to work out how do you communicate with another person in a way which supports health and well-being for yourself, for the other person, and for the group. Yeah? But from the Buddhist perspective, our job is to first attend to our own reactivity. And when we do that, then we can come to the table and be more effective and be able to communicate where we're not dumping, less harmful. And in terms of our practice, it's much, much, much more satisfying, much more gratifying. Now, there's been plenty of times when things have happened and it's like you come to the table but you still haven't released the reactivity, you know? Especially when things, you know, hurt. You know, they go down to your bone marrow. It takes a while to that stuff to release. You know, so for me, the way of dealing with that is to put the fact that the reactivity is still there on the table. You know, I haven't completely healed this yet, so I'm willing to talk, but I'm still really tender. You know? So I take responsibility for where I'm at entirely, and I don't let any of that be dumped onto the other person. And then when I'm able to do that, I feel like, well, that's being responsible. In, in terms of dealing with your own reactivity, um, like you say, it does take a lot of soul searching and time, but is the extent of the activity depending on how you identify with yourself? do, and I think it very much depends on where these things have landed. So, you know, if you're dealing with hurts that come from, you know... Um, AOs of conditioning. <laughs> y- y- if it's hurts that lands into something that happened when you were three years old, right. okay, it's not helpful to say don't identify with that, because you're transposing a kind of transpersonal thing into something which requires some psychological support. Right. Okay? Mm-hmm. You're mixing the two up. Right. Exactly. So if the hurt is coming from some of these kind of fissures that happened at a young age, mm-hmm. it needs a different way of attending to it. You need to attend to it in an interactive way rather than an observant way. So mm-hmm. for a meditation, we observe. Right. With some of the psychological stuff, we interact. Meaning with another person, not necessarily the person that you're having difficulty with. With that aspect of oneself that's hurting. Oh, inside. Yes. Got it. I got it. Now, I mean, also that takes decades to learn how to do that. Right. You know, you don't just figure out how to do that with somebody just saying this. But it is possible to be able to do both. You You can observe something and you can interact with something. And different times, different things are needed, depending on where this stuff has landed and what's hurting. And so what is needed in meditation is, I have found, is a lot of finesse. Because it's not like you just put 
let go on top of everything and it works. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Some things you need to pick up and handle and work with and talk through. It's very different. You need to interact with it rather than to let go of it. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I almost think, too, on top of that is, for me, it was could almost go into a repression if I didn't really take it out and Mm -hmm. take a look at it. So I think what I did with the insight pieces and the Buddhist way of dealing with things as they come up sometimes wasn't um, always wholesome. I would try to put it away and in that process be repressing that part that really needed light. And um, so it took me a long time. It took me some real hellish retreats to go, what is going on here? Well, the amazing thing is we can use the most exalted teachings in order to um, reinforce our ignorance. You know, because the patterns of ignorance will co-opt anything in its own favor. Anything. So we can use scripture or teachings or meditation instructions in order to reinforce negative patterning. And it takes wisdom to learn the difference between using wisdom in a way which is wise and using wisdom in a way which reinforces negative habits. Because just because we're getting wisdom doesn't mean that we're relating to it in a way which is wise. And, you know, it's classic that people will use a meditation instruction in order to reinforce stuff in the wrong way, you know? It's just classic. That's part of the reason why it's helpful having a teacher to be able to say, no, no, not like that. Don't do it like that. You know, especially somebody who has some understanding of the spectrum. Because, you know, you can be taking the classical teachings and applying them classically, and it's a disaster. It's exactly opposite of what you need. While you were talking, a question arose in my mind about what's the relationship between the psychological self and the aggregates? And are the aggregate... Is the psychological self like a mega um, formation, or is it made up of aggregates? That's a really good question, and I don't know the answer to it. I think, um, I mean, certainly the psychological self doesn't have any intrinsic existence, you know, so it doesn't exist as a as an independent, self-existing thing on its own. but you see, that takes us into a conceptual realm rather mm-hmm. than into a practice realm. And, you know, my, my feeling tone is not to go there. <laughs> I'll go with your feeling tone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what's needed is to begin to get a feeling for what is needed at different times and to practice there. That's what I think is helpful. I mean, different people liked having maps and having things kind of squared and I's dotted and T's crossed and to figure out where they are. You know, they like the G- the internal GPS system operating at all times. I've come more from a practice-oriented model where it's just what's happening right now and how am I relating to it. And that's been like, you know, a koan for the last 30 years. You know, and it's a very effective koan and it's it's foolproof and it goes travels and it it's good inside retreat and outside retreat. It's good in the desert and it's good in the office. 
It really, it's, a, it's very portable, that one. What's happening now and how am I relating to it? For the maps, in terms of how these things square, you probably need to speak to a psychoanalytic psychotherapist and a and a and a Buddhist scholar. <laughs> See what they came up with. It's not that important that I know. Figure out that there are two kinds of self: the psychological self and the uh, meditative self. So, are there any hints to actually figure out? Okay, the, okay. I think this might clear up what is psychological self or not in you, or, like, uh, or are there any uh, hindrances out there while meditating when you are not aware of uh, what the psychological self is? Yeah, I'm sure I'm, I'm completely ignorant like that. It was just like Jim, like this is the first time hearing that there is actually a self which is good for you. The only thing I could, I could figure out is, okay, actually there is a physical self, so I cannot ignore that. I cannot simply walk through this wall saying that, no, there is no physical self. So there is a physical self. No. I get to hear that there's also a psychological self that whose need, needs of which I need to be thinking about. Well, the way I learned was through suffering. And the way I learned through suffering is is, is that, you know, I was meditating very diligently in a very committed way for a very long time. And some of these patterns were not releasing or ending. And and then I had just kind of some kind of an insight was is that it, it wasn't about letting go, it was about opening something up and having a deeper look at it, which required different tools and skills than the ones that I had. So I came with the kind of general feeling that if you meditated long enough, everything would be okay. You know, there would be this kind of tremendous kind of peace and joy and letting go that would happen. And then I, I saw different things happen, and one of them had to do with I was very hurt and angry about something. And it wasn't like for a week or two, but it was going on for years. Like for six or seven years, I was hurt and angry about something. And I, no matter what kind of magic wand I wove over it, you know, meta and contemplations of death and every trick in the book, forget it. Wouldn't shift it. And then the insight was is that actually that was not the problem. There was something else that was the problem that I wasn't aware of, and that was just the trigger. So I was trying to resolve the cause without actually knowing what the cause was. And that made me realize... I need to do a different kind of approach here. It's not about letting go of the of the trigger. It's about opening up what the cause is. I needed a different way of looking. So suffering was my interest. That's where I started recognizing that we've got different things happening here. Because, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm sure you can find fault with people's diligence, but as far as I was concerned, it was pretty solid. You know, uh, the determination was pretty solid. 
And it was like, it wasn't a question of doing the meditation longer and harder. You know, I did it longer, and I did it harder, and I still was miserable. (laughs) So I can share from my own experience, but I don't know how to walk another person's walk. You know? And then after a while, then you get sensitive to certain kinds of patterns. So for myself now, it's easier for me to see or I can catch it a little bit quicker. When what I what's happening is I'm not reacting to the person, I'm reacting through conditioning from the past that's being projected onto the person. So in a psychological term, that's known as transference. And you can't resolve transference with the person because it's not to do with them, it's to do with somebody else. But it has a different feeling quality to it than when somebody says something that just makes you upset. And I can't describe it. You know, it just has the way, the kind of intensity of the emotional reactivity is a little bit, has, it pulls you away from your own body sensations in a different way than if somebody says something and you're just activated by it, it does. So again, this is a long process, but for me the insight came through investigating a suffering and recognizing that the application of the meditation techniques that I was using wasn't resolving the dilemmas that I was having to negotiate. And that the same patterns were happening again and again and again in different contexts. That was also a signal. <laughs> you had a question? Well, I would just, I just think that's really beautifully put, and I also wanted to just add that it can go the other direction as well which in my experience was more than you know, having taken it out and looked at it, understanding all the causes of it, and then not being able to let it go. So just because you just because you put light on something doesn't necessarily mean that you can know. It evaporates. Um, and I think the meditation, the meditative practice then, was what has been allowing me to move past those psychological hurts that I completely understand and have 100% inside about <laughs> and are bored to death with at this point. And I just want to release, you know, and so that's what meditation practice. Um, I think they're, they're complementary. I would agree. Yeah, so my experience was diving deep into the meditation and then 20 years on the road realizing that there was this other stuff. And in our contemporary society, it's usually the opposite. People think psychology and psychotherapy is going to be the end all, and they realize it's not. And so then sometimes after 20 years of psychotherapy, then they pick up meditation and realize the benefits of that. Yeah, they're complementary. You know, they have different things that they can add. But, you know, well, you know, certainly the kind of profound letting go where one recognizes that whatever hurts are there don't belong to an independent existing self, that's a very profound insight. You know, it's a very profound insight. <coughs> And that kind of profound insight is very healing. Yeah. So you're saying, yeah, one great step is to see the emptiness of the psychological self. Is that what you're saying? That it's emptiness. I mean, why don't you say it's important to have a healthy psychological self? That in essence, it's it's empty too. That's right. Yeah. So these things in the hurts that arise, the kind of pain that arises, um, it doesn't belong to any permanent person. Yeah. 
Yeah, just uh, relating to that, what you said, uh, the last conversation about it's the conditioning or the situation or some circumstances may have led to a certain uh, situation where a person might react because of that. So once you realize that it's not the person per se, but the condition, and once you, that's the cause, right? You may have a very uh, strong sort of whatever that hurt feeling about someone, but maybe the situation may have contributed to that. Once you realize that maybe that meditation and all of that will help you cope with that, see the two. Meditation brings awareness to body, heart, and mind and reaction to body, heart, and right. mind. Yeah. And so when you're able to see the cause and effect relationship between what's actually giving rise to the reaction, then the awareness then helps one uh, understand or be present with what's going on in, in one's body, heart, and mind in relationship to that. And that, right. and that awareness then makes it possible to make skillful choices and to see the arising of unskillful choices and not act on them. Right, and, and also you won't be um, as angry, as anxious because of the meditation, stress level, all of that. Um, I don't know. I, I can experience quite demonic rage. <laughs> but what happens when I, it is, is that I can see where it's arising from and there isn't the needing to act on it. I don't need to do anything with it. I don't need to identify with it. So, you know, certainly I am capable of feeling strong feelings, but the way I relate to them means that they don't last or they don't get embedded in the system so strongly. How was the meditation practice for you today in terms of working with the body and feeling? How did you find that? When, when you did the breathing initially, and then you know, went through the whole body, and then you said to observe the breath, it was quite interesting. I could feel the breath from the top of my head to tip to my feet. I don't think I've ever had that experience before. That was my experience on this retreat, working with Ajahn Lidamadaro's breath meditation, of just working with the breath and circulating it through the body, and just feeling how I could feel the breath through the different parts of the body, and I found it just sublime. It was wonderful. Then after lunch, I tried to do the same thing. I couldn't get there. So how come? Well, because conditions change. (laughs) (laughs) My stomach changed. (laughs) I just couldn't get the same. I couldn't get it going out my fingers. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, things change. And sometimes after eating, the energy's low. Concentration's not very strong. I see. Yeah. You know, it's always a problem when we have something lovely in meditation. We think that we'll be able to have it the next time. (laughs) Yeah. So even the lovely things in meditation we grab hold of. So, you know, the, non, the non-physical things are also things that we attach to. You know. So pleasant feeling conditions is, gives rise to the wanting. And it, it doesn't matter if the pleasant feeling is coming from a coarse physical feeling or a mental thought or a non-worldly experience. Pleasant feeling gives rise to wanting. And so, you know, tomorrow we're going to work with this this mechanism. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when we understand this mechanism and then we have some 
other choices around it, then that also is very central to this whole cycle of letting go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.